save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning. You're listening to Our Wild World, and I'm Ellie Weiss. Today, we're going to discuss Canis lupus balei, a.k.a. lobos, the Mexican gray wolf and why it is distinct, and the huge obstacles we face in bringing them back. These wolves once roamed the U.S. southwest and northern Mexico by the thousands. Wherever there was adequate prey, moisture, available forage, and water sources, there were Mexican wolves. But in the late 1800s, as European settlers moved west with their large herds of livestock, two problems occurred simultaneously and to permanently alter our southwestern ecosystems. One was unregulated hunting for sport and markets, and just for killing, along with unregulated grazing by cattle and sheep, which decimated the fragile grasslands and wildlife populations plummeted. So today, my guest is David Parsons, who led the U.S. Fish and Wildlife's effort to reintroduce the endangered Mexican gray wolf to the American Southwest from 1990 to 1999. He is the carnivore conservation biologist for the Rewilding Institute, a member of the Science Advisory Board of Project Coyote, a former member of the uh, former member and chairman of the board of directors of the New Mexico Wilderness Alliance and steering com- committee member of the Southern Rockies Wolf Restoration Project and also a member of the Southwest Gray Wolf Recovery Team. Wow, you are a busy guy. David has continued to follow the progress of the Mexican Wolf Recovery Program since his retirement from the Fish and Wildlife Service in 1999 to the present day. So, David, welcome. It is an honor to have you as my guest today. Thank you. Thank you, Elliot. It's an honor to to be your guest. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, we have lots to talk about. So, um why don't we start with, you know, you're retired from the Fish and Wildlife Service, but you're still very involved, and you are one of the foremost knowledgeable gray wolf biologists um, there is on our planet today. So why don't we start with, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then why the Lobos grabbed you. Ah, well, uh, I chose a career path to be a wildlife biologist, uh, born and raised on a Midwestern farm, and at the time when family farming was becoming an obsolete farming paradigm, I was encouraged to be one of the first of my family to go off to college, and I chose wildlife biology because I, being, you know, raising, raised on the farm, I had a lot of time outdoors, and uh, it turned out to be uh, the right fit for me. I uh, got a... Uh, bachelor's degree in wildlife biology at uh, Iowa State University. Uh, got caught up in the Vietnam draft lottery, which took a couple of years out of my out of my uh, career path, and then went back to graduate school after I got out of the Army and, uh, at Oregon State University and got a master's degree in wildlife biology. People often ask, well, you must, you know, you surely must have studied uh, wolves or canines, but 
No, actually, I studied a bird called the American Dipper. So. Oh, I love the uh, American Dipper. I have oozles right here in my yard. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I did my master's research. I may have watched dippers longer than most anybody alive, I suppose. But well, I'm going to have to talk to you. Fascinating bird. They are, and I'm going to have to talk to you about that in another conversation. So apologies for interrupting you. You got your uh, master's degree in wildlife biology. Right, I, and I, then I set out a path to work for a wildlife agency and uh, uh, on being in the, in the federal side of that rather than the state side of it, and uh, landed landed a job as wildlife biologist uh, first with uh, not with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, but a year later I transferred to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in 1975. Spent 24 years with the agency, the last nine, uh, working on the Mexican Wolf Recovery Project uh, as the first designated Mexican Wolf Recovery Coordinator. So a lot happened. Um, Mexican wolves narrowly escaped extinction um, with the passage of the Endangered Species Act in 1973, and they got placed on the list in 1976, which is about when you got there um, to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And there were a few wild Mexican wolves remained in the uh, remote Sierra Madre in the Mexican states of Chihuahua, Sonora, and Durango. And... um, those wolves were trapped. Can you tell us that story? Yes. Uh, of course, I was not engaged in the program then. I was in a different different uh, part of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and not even in the Southwest at that point in time. But uh, I know that history. Uh, the Mexican wolves actually came closer than just about any species ever to going extinct. They were completely uh, wiped out in the United States part of their range by about the mid-1940s by the government uh, agency that was formed to to wipe out predators uh, for primarily for the livestock industry in the West. And was that at the but time? Were, the, at the time, was that the problem animal control, which is now Wildlife Services? It is. It's now called Wildlife Services. Back then, it was the Predatory Animal and Rodent Control Service, and then later became uh, uh, something else. <laughs> it became Wildlife Services. Which, animal Damage Control was right. a, a, middle, a middle name for it. Yeah, uh, they were they were very good at their job. And uh, but what happened was uh, they were working primarily in the southwestern United States because it was a federal program, uh, and. So after the uh, mid-40s, when they had finally more or less got the job done in the States, they, wolves kept coming across the border from Mexico because there was a remnant population still in the wild down there. And so they would, have, they would chase those down every time they came across the border. And around 1950, they decided, well, why, why bother with that? Let's just, let's just offer our services to Mexico. And so they exported their expertise and their methods and assisted the country of Mexico in finishing the job down there. At the time, the Mexican wolves were placed on the Endangered Species Act, which was in 1976, three years after it was passed. There were 
estimated to be maybe around 50 wolves left in Mexico. Most of that information comes from a fairly famous trapper named Roy McBride, who uh, had a career both with the Wildlife Services folks and as a uh, trapper for hire for ranchers who wanted wolves exterminated, and he worked extensively in Mexico doing that. So he uh, was the go-to guy for Fish and Wildlife Service to hire because he was an expert wolf trapper. They hired him from 1977 to 1980 to go to Mexico. Agreements were made between the two countries to try to capture the last remaining wolves. And in those uh, four years that he trapped, he, uh, he caught actually six wolves. One of those wolves died in his trap. Four of the others were males, and the fifth one was a pregnant female. Those were brought to a captive holding facility in the United States to start the captive population to save the Mexican wolf from absolute extinction. So at that time, uh, we thought we were down to essentially one female and four males. Uh, Those were the wolves that were initially bred and uh, in captivity. And when when I became the Mexican Wolf Recovery Coordinator, I think there were 20-some of those wolves in the captive population. We had a lot of work to do to develop you know, all the documents and management plans and federal rules and EISs and public meetings and all of that to get permission from the Secretary of the Interior to do a release. And all that took about seven years. But in the interim, we were breeding wolves in captivity. And so by the time we got the permission to do the first releases, we had a little over 100 wolves in the captive population which was the threshold we set for ourselves for beginning to pull some off and put them back in the wild. But in, uh, in the mid-90s, uh, we had known for some time that there were other wolves in captivity that people were calling Mexican wolves, and there were two groups of those, one in the United States called the Ghost Ranch Line, which uh, a number of those spent some time at the uh, holding facility, the little zoo up at the Ghost Ranch in New Mexico, which is where that name comes from. They were founded by uh, the last wolf live captured in the United States in 1959 in extreme southern Arizona near the Mexican border. And a puppy that a Canadian tourist purchased from someone in southern Sonora, Mexico, who had dug up a den of Mexican wolves and was selling the puppies. And when he came across the border through Tucson, he had second thoughts about the little wolf puppy he had in his saddlebag, and uh, he donated it to the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum, which is a facility in Tucson that was holding that wolf that was captured in southern uh, Arizona. So, And then what about the Aragon line? And yeah, and ultimately those two bred, and that that was the source of the of the Ghost Ranch line. The Aragon line was came from wolves that were held in the Aragon Zoo in Mexico City, which is a very large zoo. 
their wild origin was not known. So in the mid '90s, we finally we finally had gen, uh, molecular genetic techniques were had been perfected to the point that one could do uh, purity tests, so to speak, using molecular genetics rather than just comparing physiological or I mean physical characteristics or morphometrics, as they call it. Uh, because some people, uh, and including Maureen McBride, was saying that the uh, that the ghost ranch line were wolf dog hybrids. So we, we had to show that they were pure. And those tests came out uh, definitive that both the ghost ranch line and the Aragon line were pure Mexican wolves. So after the, in the late nineties, we began to mix those in with the, what were called the McBride wolves in captivity to boost the genetic opposition because you know two founders is not a good base right (laughs) right and that leads to inbreeding and um all sorts of uh genetic weirdness going on and eventually sort of a biodiversity end game right exactly so so basically all that increased the number of founders to seven because there were the McBride line had the two wolves that were captured that bred and the one unknown male that that bred with that female in the wild. And then the other two groups had two founders each. So it gave us seven founding animals. And it turned out the genetic structure of those other uh, two lines were different from each other and different from the McBride wolves. So we got a fairly decent gene mix out of out of bring those together. So what happens when you bring two different genetic subspecies, I'll call them, together? Um, does it, because they're doing it with, let's say they're, you know, Florida panthers and Texas cougars, same animal, slightly different genetics. We, we just said that, you know, bringing in a wider genetic base strengthens the purity and the genetic line of especially a very small population. Is there a negative downside to mixing them? No, and this situation was a little different than the Florida panther in that these other wolves were of the same subspecies, just a different population. And that that's so, defined by their ecosystem, right? And what they're eating. Right. And, okay. Right. So, yeah, Mexican wolves were the... The gray wolves that went further south after crossing the Bering Land Strait land bridge, uh, they're thought to be in the first wave of three waves of gray wolves that crossed the land bridge over geologic time, and they got farther south, and so were the most divergent in terms of their adaptation to the uh, different ecosystems than the northern wolves. Okay, uh, so they're slightly so, they're slightly smaller. Than the the gray wolf, right? They're quite a bit smaller than the northern gray wolves. Uh, a big Mexican wolf is eighty pounds, and most of them are are smaller than that. Uh, yeah, they they're smaller. The uh, the prey base down there was made up of smaller animals, uh, a very small subspecies of white-tailed deer and javelina and such. So they didn't evolve. Uh, in the in the further south part of the range, they didn't involve uh, 
evolved with large prey. Okay. Uh, a little further, a little further north into southern the United States, southern Arizona, New Mexico, there was an elk, uh, a big elk, the Miriam's elk, that also went extinct. It has now been replaced with Rocky Mountain elk back in the 1950s, I think. Okay. So, yeah. So, so they're, they're different, so, uh, but they're, uh, they're close enough related that it wouldn't be considered crossbreeding per se. It was just blending the right. genes from three populations that got separated because of all the extermination. Okay. So basically the 400 plus, I think, Mexican wolves alive today, both in captivity and the wild, can be traced back to the founders, the Ghost Ranch, the Aragon, and um, the McBride wolves, right? Seven animals. Seven animals. Wow. Three females and four males. Wow. And we have... I mean, we do have genetic issues. That's one of the major issues of genetics. So even, you know, even seven founders is fairly minimal. And the other part of the story is that the that the agencies in charge, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the states of Arizona and New Mexico, have done a poor job of getting those those mixed genetic animals out of the captive gene pool and into the wild. And that is what we're going to focus on um, as coming up. But right now, we need to take a short break. So be sure to stick with us. My guest is Dave Parsons, Mexican gray wolf specialist. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and stick with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. 
We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. I'm Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, David Parsons, Mexican Gray Wolf Recovery Specialist. Um, So if you've been tuned in for the first half, we got some of the history of just how close the Mexican Gray Wolves came to extinction. Um, They were down to seven individuals and a lot of work was done to bring that population up to what it is today. And we left off with um, facing the hurdles uh, that still remain today that we have to get through to recover Mexican gray wolves and their genetic diversity. Dave, you left off saying you, there is a genetic issue with the population that we have. What is that issue and how does this relate directly to the management plans, the federal, the ESA, and state and special interests? Yes, uh, genetics is one of the primary issues on the downside of a Mexican wolf recovery. Uh, put in the most simplest terms, the 131 wolves that now live in the wild of Arizona and New Mexico are as related in general as brothers and sisters. So if you were to look at the genetics of just the wild population, it's, you would get the answer that they all came from, from essentially two founders and not seven. Oh. So the agencies have done a really poor job of moving the gene diversity that came from the other two breeding lines into captivity. They've done a poor job of getting those wolves out into the wild. Uh, in large part, that stems from uh, a lot of back pressure that the agency gets from state agencies who have been pushing back for a long time on the number of wolves that would be released. Uh, a prime example of that was that in 2003, this is after I've left the Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, the states put pressure on the United States Fish and Wildlife Service to allow them to take over the management decision-making authority for the wolves in the wild, saying that the federal authority was better directed to uh, rules and regulations and the captive breeding program. So they took charge in early 2004 and had had that authority for six years and in at the end of 2003, going into 2004, the annual count showed 55 wolves in the wild, which is exactly what we predicted the population to be at that point in the recovery process in our earlier analytical documents. Six years later, after six years of state-controlled management, the population in the wild was 42 wolves. decline over four years. The same sort of thing we're seeing in other gray wolf populations that have been taken off the list. We see state agencies driving their wolf populations down instead of up. So 
uh, lawsuits were filed, and <laughs> the point I make in, in when I talk about the uh, positive gains in Mexican wolf recovery is that no positive gain has ever been been uh, uh, voluntarily taken on by the agencies without being forced by a litigation from the conservation community. Even the start of the program and the job that I got was forced by a lawsuit after the Fish and Wildlife Service decided around 1980 that uh, it was just hopeless and they, uh, the states weren't uh, offering up uh, places for wolves to be released, so they were terminating the project. Well, that forced a lawsuit that, that brought the project back to life and forced the agency to hire somebody to run it, and that was the job that I got back then. Okay. That's a little side little side story, but... Well, another little side uh, story is um, part of that, and I think was in the lawsuit, and what you were bringing about was mismeasured mortality and correcting those estimates um, that the government estimates are, are affected by biases and underestimating right. n- not only the, the risk of poaching, but, you know, natural mor- mortality and how those biases obscured what was going on with the, both the captive packs and the wild packs. How did you manage through these lawsuits to to bring all this together and bring the wolf back to bring the wolf project back to the fore? Well, uh, the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, when the lawsuit was filed, got the message that uh, you know they were in charge and that their charge was to recover, not to drive the population toward extinction. So instead of going through the full litigation process, they came to the settlement table and we, at the settlement table, uh, I was actually a party to that lawsuit, that we came to uh, the agreement that the authority would be placed back with the Fish and Wildlife Service and that the the uh, a procedure that the states had developed called Standard Operating Procedure 13 would be a null and void because that was the driving procedure, the procedure that drove the wolf population down. And in the simplest terms, it said any wolf that could be implicated in the death of livestock three times in any given year had to be permanently removed, either killed or put back in captivity forever. And the, the management offtake, the actual government offtake uh, of animals during that six-year period was so high when, you know, when coupled with uh, poaching that it was driving that population down. And when you say offtake, you mean permanent removal, killing from the landscape. Okay. Either killing or, you know, essentially putting a wolf back in captivity and saying that it can never go back to the wild is the same as a dead wolf in terms of population. How many of the... Mexican gray wolves are in captivity now. How many are in the wild? And I've heard there were um, some uh, possibilities of taking, I'm not sure if it was gray wolves or Mexican gray wolves, of the pups born in captivity were taken and put into dens of wild wolves. Is is yeah. that okay? That's true. So 
The captive population, give or take a few, I think is around 225 animals right now. The, the, that, that cap, or it's not really a cap, but that number is really based on the number of facilities that are actually available to hold and breed captive wolves. Um, that's kind of the limit of the space available. Right I think now. I think one of them is my friend Linda Searles down in um, Scottsdale at the Southwest Wildlife Conservation Center. Yes, yeah, She's one of the certified holders of Mexican wolves. Uh, there are fifty-two or three facilities like hers uh, and zoos uh, in the United States and Mexico that are holding wolves. Um, you talked about. Uh, Go ahead. I was just going to say, once it's in a zoo, does it ever come out of a zoo? I know zoos move populations around, but I rarely hear of a zoo sending a wolf back into um, a facility to be rewilded. Ah, well, they are, and they have to be because that's the only source other than uh, reproduction in the wild. we're getting more more wolves into the population. And if, if we are to solve this genetic bottleneck, we have to move more wolves out of captivity into the wild. For for many years, up till four or five years ago, that was done by releasing adult wolves, usually paired and often with pups, uh, into the wild to that were uh, of the right genetic makeup to be beneficial to the wild population. Well, some of those wolves, of course. Uh, having come out of captivity, uh, took some time to adapt to living in living in the wild, and uh, they could some would get into what we would call trouble. If wolves wouldn't think of it that way, I guess. <laughs> uh, you know, kill livestock and maybe show up too close to humans for a while. Uh, we had, of course, that to deal with initially because all of our wolves came out of captivity, but eventually they developed wild habits and. Uh, if they hadn't, we, we wouldn't have Mexican wolves today. So, But the states have been putting a lot of pushback on the agency, the Fish and Wildlife Service, to move to a different procedure, which is called cross-fostering of puppies. And the way that works is the uh, field team identifies a, a pack of wolves that are showing uh, signs of denning, which they can do by... The uh, radio locations tend to centralize on one spot. And then they can make a strong prediction of which wolves have reproduced in the wild. And knowing, because those wolves have radio colors, they know who they are and they know what their genetic makeup is. They can match that pair up with a pair in captivity uh, that is allowed to breed and produce pups. Now, they have to make that guess, obviously, uh, three months at least before uh, wolves are actually born. But the field team knows which which packs are regular, you know, are are likely to be breeding. So when they when they, so they when they so cross they foster the- for genetics, I'm, I just want to clear up something. I'm confused. They want to bring yeah. in um, more diverse genetics, but that they match up Absolutely. with one of those lines or a different line. Yeah. Well, the lines are mixed now. Okay. The lines are all mixed in captivity. And, and so there are 
you know, there are wolves in captivity that have a blend of all those genes. They have the best genetic diversity that we can possibly achieve out of seven founders, which is still way less than, for example, northern wild wolves have in terms of gene diversity. It's still down you know, at a level that's right. somewhat critical, but it's the best we have. And um, so then they, they identify a, a litter that's born in captivity. And a lot of things, there has to be a, a major harmonic convergence of, of uh, events that the wild litter has to be born within 10 days or so of the captive litter or vice versa. Uh, the field team has to be able to find the den, which is not always easy, and uh, determine that there, you know, that there are some wild puppies in the wild den. Then, at a, at a given moment, uh, sometime before those pups are much more than a couple of weeks old, they have to pull. Usually, it's two pups out of the captive uh, litter fly them to the location where, or as close as they can, to the location where the wild den is and go find the den, send somebody in to crawl in the den and pull the wild pups out. Oh. And the technique's kind of interesting because they they just carry a big sack and they put the wild pups and the captive pups in a, in a, in a sack. Sort of a, <laughs> a, a bait and switch. Almost. Yeah. What is what, uh, yeah, what is uh, the what is the wild female wolf think of that? Has there been any? Well, she she leaves the area, of course, uh, when everybody shows up, and uh, who knows whether she's sitting on a hillside watching or not. But uh, they carry out some of the dirt in the den, and they just they just mix these puppies all together, so that all they all smell alike. Okay. And they all smell like the den. And then if the den has too many pups, if it has, I forgot what the cutoff is, six or eight, I think it's eight, they'll take two two pups out of the wild litter and take those back to captivity. Okay. So that the, uh, the litter's not more than eight, I think, is the number. Uh, and that they, helps reduce oh, mortality, natural mortality. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, and boost they, um, the captive population. Yeah, except that except the, it's the all wolves the same are removing genes. are, you know, are the genes yeah. that that we really want to replace in the wild. So right. they would go to captive captivity, but probably never be wolves that would be released again because oh. they're very very highly related to all the other wolves in the wild. Unless they could be released um, into a new area, well, where it wouldn't matter. Yeah, I mean, that, the only area that would be at this time would be in Mexico. And is so, Mexico willing to have Mexican gray wolves? Yeah, they've they've started a reintroduction program down there uh, a few years back. And uh, last I heard, there were about 30 wolves in the wild in Mexico. Okay. Um, but the idea is that uh, over time, if a significant population develops in Mexico, if there are genes there that would be better in the U.S. and vice versa, they, they might pull wolves from the wild and, and switch them. But that's, that's so far off to not even be considered at this point in time. Wow. So, so anyway, the, uh, so far, that's, every time they've done that, uh, which is getting up around 
20 times now, I think. Oh. Uh, over the past four years, four or five years, um, the uh, the wolves, the, the pups are accepted. As far as we know, they've never been rejected. Uh, it has been reported by the field team that in nearly every case, if not every case, the female, the first thing she will do is move the whole litter to a different den. Right. That makes sense. And uh, <laughs> Yeah. But uh, some of those pups have grown up. Uh, and, and, are, been, are, and are any of them collared? They are all chipped at the time. Okay. And then uh, they won't collar a wolf until it's somewhere on the order of, oh, about six months old or more in the fall and early winter. They do their capturing to put collars on. And that's because and they of will know. growth issues growing out of the collar? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, wow. The collar has to shift, basically. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and then they'll know if it's, uh, because they can read the chip. Well, that's... They'll know who it is. If, if it's one of the the uh, cross-fostered wolves, they'll know who it is. And that's really cool. So, unfortunately, we need to take a little break. Um, but we still have lots to talk about in terms of, you know, that the wolf population still needs to be increased. And further, that we do have limited options for where they can go. So stick with us and my guest, David Parsons, and we'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. I'm Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, David Parsons, with the Mexican Gray Wolf Recovery. Um, and if you've been tuned in to the previous two sections of this podcast, you'll have learned by now how it's why it's so difficult to reintroduce a species, especially when it's down to the last seven wolves, but the genetic diversity is so, and do the DNA testing genetics on it, we don't really have a big pool of genetic diversity to pull from. So we talked about reintroducing um, pups from captives into wild and bringing wild back into captivity. But part of the problem, as we've discussed and what we're going to get into, is how difficult it is to just get the ed, the, the the federal government and the state government and the politics to accept wolves in these areas. So, Dave, help us understand just how much that gets in the way of a species survival plan for such a small, um, distinct, and endangered species as the Mexican gray wolf. Oh, sure. Uh, the primary impediment, but I'd like to just cap off what we were talking about before the break, and that is uh, the difference between this cross-fostering and putting out adult wolves. Uh, it's the states that push back against putting out adult wolves, and they do promote this cross-fostering program, and it's a cool idea, and it works, but uh, the extent to what it, that it works is is still not determined, because if you think about it, that puppy has to grow up survive to breeding age, which is two, find a mate, reproduce, and only then are those genes actually uh, infused into the overall population. So it's a, it's a three-year minimum lag time before any one of those pups has a genetic effect on the wild population. Wow. And in the wild, we can only, you know, we only expect about half of all wolves born to live to be one, let alone two. Uh, so it's still not known just to what extent that's going to boost the genetics. Uh, but it is getting wolves into the wild with a different gene mix, but we don't know yet. So that's of part of the various Mexican wolf recovery projects that you're still involved in. Right. And, you know, the other, if you put out adult wolves uh, that are already pair bonded and have pups already and have within them the genes you're looking for to infusing it well that happens immediately if, if that group survives so uh, it's it's a faster way uh, the states have opted for the other way because uh, they don't have to deal with putting uh, you know bringing adults out of a captive environment and into the wild and that and that um, is because they that would mean they'd have to find a territory a space for them to go where they're not competing with an already established pack well, there's that, but the, the the other concern that the states have is that they believe that those wolves are more, more naive, are more likely to to create problems with human endeavors like cattle raising and and such, or become uh, a nuisance around human habitation. Uh, 
some wolves have done that in the past, but it's been shown uh, that if you use a a well-established bonded pair with pups, as long as that pack sticks together, they tend to to uh, be you know be good wolves in the wild, so to speak. Uh, that's one issue, but the other issue is the states don't want as many wolves as independent scientists have have uh, recommended that we need. And back in the around uh, 2010, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service, under pressure from a lawsuit, decided uh, it needed to needed to revise the recovery plan. And you know, the first recovery plan was written in 1982, and had, as of 2010, had not yet been revised. It was not really a full recovery plan. It was just a plan for how do we avoid extinction primarily. And it got us through that phase. Uh, that recovery team that was formed back then was done uh, in the way that it's supposed to be, and that is that they put together a team of independent scientists that had no affiliation with agencies involved. These are academic scientists primarily and were independent scientists. That team said we needed uh, we needed to put Mexican wolves in three places, uh, three different populations that were could be uh, connected by you know long long stretches of uh, habitat corridors where wolves could actually occasionally move back and forth among the three populations. And that each population had to be at least 200 wolves, and that the total population, when you add the three together, had to be at least 750 wolves. We're nowhere near that. Their, no, and they published their draft report, which they were obliged to do because they were members of the official U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recovery team. And the other part of that team were stakeholder groups that you know various interest groups uh, sat on, and it was their job then to figure out how to make you know, how to make that work with the least amount of social <laughs> angst. So, uh, you know, socialization, not only for the wolves, but for people. For the, to get, for so, the people. Right. Yeah. So this other half of the recovery plan team were probably the vested interests of ranchers and yes. um, cattlemen, sheepmen. The states, so, the ranchers, the hunters, the trappers, the outfitters, and then a few members from the conservation community and tribes uh, were all on these the group. Well, it didn't get that far because uh, the states were so upset with the numbers that they blew up that, that whole recovery process by leaking the draft report, which was supposed to be a confidential internal document until it was adopted by the Fish and Wildlife Service. And then, it, you know, they got publicity and... and created uh, such a stink over it that the Fish and Wildlife Service just withdrew uh, from that process. They put that put that report on a shelf for six years and did nothing. So where is it so now? Was, well, then there was a lawsuit again. Like okay. I mentioned earlier, everything happens as a result of a lawsuit. It forced the Fish and Wildlife Service to actually revise the recovery plan. And so they settled that lawsuit and agreed to do that. But instead of reinstating the team that had already been named, they started from scratch and they invited primarily only state uh, agency biologists and state agency policymakers to the table 
to produce a new plan. So they kind of they kind of stacked the deck. Yeah, they stopped it and politically. And so the new plan came out, and lo and behold, we don't need 750 wolves in the United States to recover Mexican wolves. We only need 320. Uh, and they got there by by uh, and there's a, there's an interesting paper out that compares. They use the same modeling technique uh, called vortex modeling to figure out how many wolves you need to avoid extinction. Use the same technique that the other team used, but they uh, put in different parameters and came up with a different number. And there's a paper just published that explains how that can happen, how two teams using, so they claim, as the Endangered Species Act requires, using the best available science can get such a vastly different number. And it's really politically motivated. And uh, the paper not only alludes to that, it makes that claim pretty boldly. So, so this group decided that in order to make that model work, what they did was they uh, got Mexico to agree to recover up to 200 wolves uh, so that the two combined still well short of 750, but we're up at least into the 500s now, uh, that those two populations combined would avoid uh, eventual extinction of Mexican wolves. Wow. And the data used for what could be achieved south of the border were not very definitive. A lot of a lot of assumptions were made. Plus, you know, there's the the fact is that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has no no authority to force Mexico to do anything. So it's really you know the pair the the model for endangered species recovery since the act was passed, was that the Fish and Wildlife Service would do, you know, the most they could within the states and not rely on uh, programs outside the country to achieve some recovery goal if, you know, their habitat were available and habitats were available in the states, which the earlier team had shown. Two of those habitats were north of Interstate 40 in northern Arizona, dipping into southern Utah and northern New Mexico, dipping into southern Colorado. And the states were adamant that they did not want uh, wolves north of I-40. And this includes even the states of Utah and Colorado. So uh, they they uh, instigated a letter from signed by the four governors of the four southwestern states to the Fish and Wildlife Service that in the second round of recovery planning, uh, they wanted to make sure that that wolves were not allowed to exist Mexican gray wolves above north of I-40 and that any recovery that needed to be done beyond what was already authorized in the states would be done in Mexico. (laughs) Well, magically, uh, in 2015, the rules for recovery in the states were changed. Uh, There were some good things. The, uh, The areas that wolves could occupy was expanded up to I-40 in Arizona and New Mexico. But that regulation put a cap at 325 wolves in the United States. And that was completely politically motivated cap. In the draft regulation, the Fish and Wildlife Service said they were not going to place a cap on it. They were going to wait for a future recovery plan to tell them what the cap would be. States States complained between the draft and the final. Lo and behold, the final came out with 
a cap of 325 volts that was based on a, a nebulous concept called social tolerance that the states <laughs> like to use. It's all about people, and it's all about people who uh, have a negative attitude toward wolves. Um, you, know, you know, my response to that is, well, what about the, well, you know, what segment of society gets to decide social tolerance? <laughs> because if you do polls, you find that 70% of, of uh, the entire populace uh, supports wolf recovery and the Endangered Species Act. And uh, so that's a subset of society that gets to make this decision as to what the limit is. And it's primarily the, primarily hunters and ranchers and the state states of course are and the u.s government for that matter are more or less captured by those interests in, in we, decision making yeah we talked about this with john landre and you know he'd done an article who owns the wildlife and we right. highlighted we've highlighted several times over this series between cougars bears and wolves that so much of these plans are guided by game agencies and game is defined as that which we like to hunt so of course we want more of it whether it's for food or for trophy and then our carnivores are segregated from that and put into other sections as either fur bearers or vermin because we have no social tolerance for them because once we extirpated them we came across and did all our thing, and we still are under that mindset that we don't want any natural predator carnivore competition that could possibly take our stuff. Yeah. Manifest destiny is huh. still alive and well in the West. <laughs> uh, I sure would like to change the definition of that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, so you're yeah, very well uh, yeah. So you're very involved still in um, the wolf recovery plan, and obviously still working with it. And we have a big fight. So, what can um, listeners do? How can people, the public, get involved? Where can we go to point out that we would like to see the U.S. Fish and Wildlife change this mentality? How do we talk about it in our local communities? I mean, here in Colorado, we're going to have to deal with gray wolves coming in, and it's real obvious CPW doesn't want them, and um, the Rocky Mountain Wolf Reintroduction pro pro Program does. So they're bringing it to a ballot, and then we get all the anti-wolf coalitions. So how can we in our communities advocate for rewilding? That's a great question. Uh, I mean, we just... We, we we have to be vocal about what we want, what we believe in, what we think is right. Uh, we have to never give up, and we have to take every opportunity that's presented to have a formal voice in that process. Uh, we need to change the minds of a lot of people who wield political power. <clears throat> that has to do with who you vote for, in part, and how you communicate with elected officials. There are occasionally opportunities come up, like the one uh, that just closed to for the public to have a say about whether or not all the gray wolves up your way should be taken off the endangered species list. Uh, 1.8 million people, it has been estimated, have 
chimed in saying they don't want that to happen. They don't want the wolves to be taken off the endangered species list. That's the largest number of comments ever, at least on a on an environmental issue. So that's not a done deal yet. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of comments that come in from uh, conservation litigation groups that clearly point out that uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service is not following the Endangered Species Act uh, with this proposal to the gray wolves. Something interesting happened just a few days ago. Uh, a letter surfaced. The Attorney General for the State of, Mi- of Michigan wrote Secretary of Interior David Bernhardt and said they were violating the Endangered Species Act by proposing to remove the gray wolves and that they were they were weaponizing states like Michigan who had done well and, and letting all the other states off the hook for, for uh, harboring any gray wolves. It was the first time I'd ever seen a state actually come out that strongly in favor of not taking something off the endangered species list. So times are changing a little bit, and uh, the message might come through from those 1.8 million people. And, and more. Uh, so I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think that's a good deal. Um, down here, we still have two things in play. That 2015 regulation that I spoke of was challenged in court and overturned for not being based on the best science. So the judges ordered that that be done over again. So that reopens uh, some very critical points. One is it revisits whether or not that cap of 325 is legitimate and based on science and whether or not putting a hard boundary at Interstate 40 is is legitimate and based on science. And so the Fish and Wildlife Service has 25 months to revise that regulation. That's going to involve more drafts and more public comments and public meetings, public hearings. And we need to engage fully in that. The recovery plan that uh, limited recovery in the states to the 320 wolves, which magically was the same as what was in that regulation, um, even though it was based on science, so they claimed. Yeah, that's under litigation, uh, still in play. Uh, so we have a chance to overturn that, and if we're successful with that litigation, uh, so the states then that'll the, be done again. So, okay, yeah, so, things are, so the states that are good habitat for the Mexican gray wolves are well, Mexico south of the border, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado parts of Utah and parts of Colorado. In so the southern end. Yep. are these places, I mean, we like to imagine when we visualize wolves that they're out there in the wild and there's a lot of space, but there's a lot of fragmentation going on down there. Not only cattle on public lands, but human development that also creates boundaries. Well, those places that have been identified are for the large part public lands. Uh, uh, it's interesting that you refer to cattle grazing as a means of, as a, a cause of fragmentation. I guess it is in a sense because it it creates an expectation of certain management to 
prevent harm to the uh, human enterprises that are taking place on our public lands. But but the land is public and it's it's well blocked up and well connected. It's very small percentage of any of those areas being recommended for wolf recovery are private, except in Mexico, because that's what we have in Mexico is large private holdings. But they, they didn't have reliable data on uh, the prey base. They don't really know how many deer they have. And there's not a lot of enforcement that takes place in rural Mexico. Uh, some of these ranches actually uh, remote having deer herds so they can sell high dollar hunts to uh, folks. It sort of goes back to what we said. United States, for example. So we've kind of come full circle that wherever there is adequate prey, moisture, available forage, and water for the prey species, we can have Mexican wolves if we can turn the the mindset of the ranchers and the private interests, vested interests, hunters and U.S. Fed and state politics start reintroducing adult pair-bonded wolves. Yeah, this gets to the whole notion of fostering coexistence. Exactly. Between humans and carnivores, which is the major thrust of the one group that I affiliate with, Project Coyote. And we've had uh, Camilla Fox on and we've talked about coexistence and I'm glad you brought that up because that really is the key point to any future rewilding or living with wildlife and carnivores in particular across our landscapes is coexistence. I just say we have to come to a collective uh, mindset that non-human animals have a right to exist for their own for their own selves and not because you know they have any particular value to us or right stop yeah. commodifying and unitizing into dollars everything that lives right. and that's the paradigm shift we're sitting on folks and unfortunately dave we're out of time this has been a fabulous conversation i've learned a lot and i thank you so much for your time You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. And I look forward to talking to you some more about some other subjects. So, meanwhile, folks, why don't you step out into your wild world and take part and be aware of what's going on in your states. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 